Okay, so she has nearly three decades under her belt as a professional actor, work, working frequently with Quentin Tarantino, who actually co-produced a film with her. By the way, she also writes, directs, and produces. A true steward of the craft of filmmaking, when she is not making movies, she teaches and coaches actors. She's also a published author of numerous novels, including a book that every actor should be reading called No, that's K-N-O-W, No Small Parts. Thank you very much for taking the time <laughs> oh, to talk to us today. <laughs> All right. Now, Laura, again, again, definitely thank you for joining us today. I want to jump right into it. Now, there is a video on your YouTube channel, and we'll put the link up here with Richard Dreyfuss, where you guys are talking about acting in the zone. Now, in the video, you compare acting to being a god or giving birth. Now, having, com like, having complete control over your emotions and the audience. Now, there's no doubting that your love and respect for what you do. When did you realize that acting was something that you wanted to do, and what was the inspiration that propelled you in that direction? Well, I'm going to tell you the truth, although it's a weird story, but I first want to say those two quotes about um, acting, making you feel like a God or giving birth. I want to be clear that I, to my knowledge, have never been a God nor given birth. Um, but but uh, that sense of creation, that sense of creating an entire universe um, is what I was talking about. And, and that's different than that thing of feeling that you are feeling that you're controlling the emotions of the people watching you, that's mm -hmm. a little different than that. And my sentiment about that is a little different. Um, so I'll, I'll answer the question at large, which is uh, how did I get here? Um, it's a weird story. It's a weird story. I was, uh, I was a, I had a regular, career path planned out. I was 25 and uh, I was a homeowner and I was um, married and I was um, getting ready to start my doctorate in uh, creative writing and English literature, uh, which is what my master's is in. And, um, and I thought I was going to be a professor and write novels and that that would be my path. And so I was on that path and I was getting ready to start uh, schooling and I was planning, you know, I was meeting with advisors and getting all that geared up because it's a huge undertaking. And um, I was running a dress boutique. Uh, Jessica McClintock had opened her first East Coast dress boutique and I ran that and I modeled uh, and I taught college English at night. And so I was at a modeling gig in New York and I was coming home on the train and I sort of had my head leaned against the window and I'm looking out the window, watching the world go by, clack, 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 you know. Mm. <laughs> and, and I heard a voice and the voice said, you're supposed to be an actor. Now, I don't know if that voice came from somewhere deep inside of me or whether that voice came from somewhere on high or whether it was just my subconscious yelling from the back of my head to the front of my head. I have no idea. But I wasn't in the habit of hearing voices. So when I did, I paid attention. Um, 
It turns out that Rene Russo heard the exact same phrase. So maybe there's a voice that's just out there going to, you know, you should be an actor. <laughs> I don't know. And I got the call, but, um, but it, it felt like a calling. And that was weird because as I just stated, my life was sort of not about any of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I did something crazy. I quit all my jobs. I moved to New York. I sold my house and I started studying acting in, at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And the very first day I walked in there, I felt home, I felt known. Um, and I, I just, it was, it was what was I was supposed to be doing. That's crazy. So are, are you, so if she said she heard a voice and the first thing you respond with is that's crazy. Goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, to hear a voice is one thing, but to but to drop everything and go and do this one hundred percent—that I mean, that's that's a little crazy. It's out there. Well, and twenty-five is is young for a human, but it's pretty old for an actor, and especially a female. Twenty-five is you know you're you're getting up in your twilight years, and uh, and I I didn't know how to act, so I went to the American Academy to learn how to be an actor. That was, you know. I spent three years in three and a half years in New York learning. And then I went to LA and spent another two years learning before I even tried to get an acting job because I wanted to be competitive. And I knew that the women my age were like Helen Hunt and Jodie Foster. And you know, like, how is I supposed to, they've been working since they were, Jodie Foster been working since she was in diapers. And yeah. Helen Hunt been working since she was like eight or something. I mean, they, these were really, you know, like, yeah, how they, go up against them. So for aspiring actors out there, from the time that you, I don't even say you made that decision, you just heeded the call. From the time you, you, you left the old world behind and joined the acting community, what was that journey like from, from making that decision to get in your first role? action-packed adventure, I would say. And so far as that I was doing lots of things that were unfamiliar to me, I was, I, you know, I grew up in DC area, so I'd been to Manhattan plenty of times, but I'd never lived in Manhattan. And um, so that's in and of itself uh, an adventure. And it was the late eighties, early nineties. So it was the okay corral back then. It was pre the cleanup, you know? So it was, uh, it was a nitty gritty city. And, um, and then I moved to LA. I didn't know one person there. I just packed up my car and moved there. And, uh, and you know, I went from having a master's in teaching college to I was carrying tickets in a movie theater for $6 an hour and, you know, like having to figure out, I basically had to start my entire life over again. Yeah. Um, yeah so it was, it was an adventure, but you know, like most adventures, I met people along the way that are still in my life today, like Jannard Burks I met at the American Academy. He, you guys might know him from Devil in a Blue Dress or um, Hangover. He plays uh, Mike Tyson's bodyguard in Hangover, uh, yeah. Snake Eyes. Anyway, he's fabulous, four brothers, he's amazing. And he and I met when he was like 19 or something. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um, we became best buds in New York and to this day remain madly deeply in love with our friendships. So, you know, that's one of the great things about going on a big adventure is that you meet other big adventurers who are, you know, 
crazy like you, I guess, you know? <laughs> you can kind of see that when you go down your IMDb and you go from one project to another, there seems to be like, there seems to be some kind of connection like you're like you're getting your foot in the door somewhere you make an impression and then you get a call later on from the that same group of people or something but that, that actually kind of leads into yeah i was going to say now the, one of the things you, you mentioned the 90s earlier now your first role your first role was in a short film written and directed by richard dreyfus called present tense past perfect in 1995. Now, during our deep dive, because we love to do our research here, there seems to be a friendship and mutual respect that goes that goes way back between you two. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I should say that despite the fact that I only have a, a little line in that, I actually am the reason that that project happened. I, I didn't know that was called producing back then. I should have gotten a producer credit instead of my little teeny actor credit I was so excited to get. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the people who made that movie um, asked me uh, if I could, if, if Richard had anything that he wanted to direct and he did and I knew that. So yes, Richard and I were friends uh, way, we've been friends for now, what is what are we at? This is 1992, I think I met him. Okay. So, um, but if you had deep dived enough, I don't ever, ever talk about this part, but our friendship did start as a, as a romance. Um, so there are a few pictures out there on the internet of us on, on our red carpets back in the back in the back. You'll the find it. You'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in any case, um, you know, our, our friendship's been through so many evolutions and revolutions and, and all that, that, um, yeah, we, we, he wrote the foreword for my book, No Small Parts. He, um, he and I double date when he comes to New Orleans to shoot. Uh, he's been instrumental in helping me with my career and I've been instrumental in helping him with his. I used to be his reader and um, read his scripts for him. And, you know, we've, we've just really, he's been a mentor for me. I've been an inspiration for him and we've just been there for each other for a really long time now. I've watched his children go from little kids to now they have, one of them has two children of her own. <laughs> so. That kind of cued me in on because I saw a picture with you guys and uh, some kids, and it looked like a um, some kind of service, like a, a christening or baptism or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. I saw I saw a priest. Oh, with the Pope. The Pope. Oh, that not just the priest. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> My apologies, Pope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, okay, I, JP too, man. Yeah, you know, JP too. Yeah, the the, the face. JP in the Vatican. That's, that was very cool. Some type of ceremony. That was very cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we did that as a as a family, but I really was just a travel companion at that point. I mean, you know, like I said, our romance was the jumping off point, but our friendship has had all sorts of shapes. <laughs> so that's really cool that you guys yeah. were able to start at a on a relationship level and transition it health in a healthy way to something where you guys can both benefit from each other. That's amazing. I feel like when you love somebody that love, you know, it can evolve. Yes. Yeah. As long as it doesn't get destroyed in the process of loving. <laughs> well I'm I'm not a very destructive person and I can take a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> we we saw in Django. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so in 1996, you started in the Larry Sanders show and I was curious what it was like working with Gary Shanlin. And I'm even more curious if David Duchovny is in, in as cool in person as he seems to be. 
Well, you know, I have to say one thing that's very different about David Duchovny is that he's super educated. And I never told people I was educated in LA because it would separate me from them. Um, in, in our job, not only do you not need to have a college degree, you could be seen as, an, as a moron for wasting your youth in college. And um, certainly you wouldn't have a graduate degree. You'd have to be 150 years old to have a graduate degree. So I just didn't talk to people about my education. And when I met David, um, I had our, his brother directed commercials. So I'm sure he still does. And so they were both, you know, guys who worked a lot and, um, and they're just smarty pants. They're super smart and they stand out in that crowd because they're also super educated. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, it's not the norm there. A lot of the agents and, and uh, behind the scenes people might be educated, but uh, for actors, it's just not, it's not part of the process. It's not part of the road. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so I enjoyed that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Southerner by uh, heritage, but I grew up on the East Coast. And so it was kind of nice to meet a sort of an East Coasty kind of person with the same sort of upbringing I had had and the mm -hmm. same sort of values I had been raised with in that way. Um, so yes, I very much enjoyed working with him. Uh, Gary, <laughs> Gary and I um, originally met, I can't remember if I originally met him at Ivana Chubbuck's acting studio where he, he was a very longtime friend of Ivana Chubbuck who was my coach. And um, so I can't remember if I met him there because he used to come audit the class sometimes. Or I think, I think the first time I met him in person was at uh, Kevin Costner's house. And uh, I, he angered me. And so I, I hit him on the head. Well, and then well, he did well, it again. Was it, like a, was it like a boop or like a full on? He was sitting down and I was standing up. So I just went on his forehead. <laughs> like a but dog. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It had some weight behind it. And, uh, and then he did it again. So I did it again. I hit him twice. And about a week later, I get the call to go in and read for his show. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, like I wasn't entirely sure how that was all going to go. But, you know, the first call, you don't meet any producers or stars or what you just meeting casting people. So I went to the casting and I'm sitting in the waiting room and he comes in probably to check out the talent, you know, but anyway, he comes in, he peeks around the room, he looks at all the girls and then he sees me and he goes, and you could tell he was trying to place me. And I was like, yeah, we met at Kevin's a week or so ago. And he's like, you come to my office after you audition. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so he goes back to his office. I do my audition. It goes pretty well. And then afterward, and in the time that I should be going, yes, yes, in the bathroom or something, I am now being called down to the principal's office. And I walk in and he made me promise that if I got the job, that I wouldn't strike him anymore. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and, uh, and I got the job and we had a great time together. I really loved working with him. And you know, over the years I would run into him quite a bit because like I said, he was Ivana's friend and he just was around town. He, he, we had a lot of mutual friends. 
And the last time I ran into him, he, we were just, he was coming out of a building I was going into to audition. And um, I think he's, he was an incredible, incredible uh, comic. He was a smarty pants and he really contributed so much to our, you know, our legacy of comedy and storytelling. And I wish that during this pandemic, both of his series had come made the rounds because they're both so good. Yeah. Like really good television. Yeah. Larry Sanders show is very ahead of its time. Like shows are just now well, doing that. The now. Gary Sanders show. Mm -hmm. That was great too. Yes, yeah. I can agree. As we as we keep taking a trip throughout the 90s, it's 1997. Uh, you were featured in a star-studded episode of Friends. Everybody loves that. <laughs> that also featured uh, Ben Stiller and John Favreau. Uh, let me ask you something. Uh, I'm an actor myself now. Of course, I've never done I've never done TV as far as studio audiences. What is it like for a professional like yourself to go from acting in front of tele acting in front of a camera you know you cut going at it going at it going at it but then there's this live studio audience where the beats are built in and you have to wait for audience reaction or like what is the difference how does that ah, what do you do there it's more like a play hmm. and since i was theater trained in new york i mean i was shakespearean trained uh, you know i was used to the theater the boards as they say um so for me, it actually wasn't as big an adjustment as it would be if I hadn't come from a theater background. And I wish that they would tell young people starting out that, that, hey, if you're going to, if you're interested in television and, and particularly if you're interested in comedic television, where you're more likely to have a live audience, you should do theater. I mean, you're definitely going to learn more about the rhythm and flow of it, of the whole thing. And the biggest difference I would say is that in theater, the line is gospel. It's actually illegal to change any of the words mm. without permission. Um, whereas in television, they might actually change them as you're saying them, you know, yeah. like, yeah, one take to the next. They might say, you know what, forget that line, say this instead. So it's, it's much more improvisational to do television than to do theater. Um, but you know, it helps. It helps to have had that theater background. It made it less shocking. But I will say, my it was a baptism by fire. It was the number one show in the universe. It felt like, but certainly in our country, it, it was the number one show by a country mile. There were thirty-two million people watched that episode. It was like the Super Bowl. You know, like yeah. that. That was just the first time it aired. So, um, you know, it was it was huge. And when and I was nobody. And uh, they have warm-up comics that get the crowd ready for the taping mm -hmm. that, you know, keep people loose and in the mood to laugh. And um, I guess they were trying to pronounce my name. And uh, <laughs> so the comic had asked if anybody in the audience uh, knew how to say my name. And I had, uh, my manager was sitting in there. So she yelled it out and he couldn't hear her. And so she yelled it out again and he, maybe he could and feigned that he couldn't, but in any case, he kept saying it over and over until the whole audience was helping her say it. And so as I'm getting ready to shoot my very first moment of the yes, yes, the whole building is chanting, yes. I had no idea what to do with that. <laughs> 
but it made me feel like I was on equal footing. You know, I, I felt a little less like the nobody on set. You know, Dina Meyer was in that episode. Like, you know, like so many people, Ben, John, all these people were in that episode. It was a crazy episode. Yeah. Does that affect your performance, like uh, in a good or bad way when you're when you're getting like a direct line to the audience reaction to what you're doing? Well, I think, again, if you're theater trained, you're you're used to that. You live on that. If you're used to working on camera, I, I will bet that even if you were alone in just looking in the mirror, saying lines to yourself, that you would feel when they're landing. Mm-hmm. even if you're the only audience. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I will tell you that that even if it's just you and there's video village behind some wall somewhere, you can feel whether you're landing, you can feel whether or not you're scoring. And so when you do it in front of a live audience, you definitely feel that feeling of, oh my God, I just landed that joke so well, or I had that moment just so scored or whatever. But, but the audience can also surprise you and even mess you up a little because sometimes they find things funny that you didn't know were funny or strange that you thought were normal or whatever, you know, like you just didn't know what you were making when you made it. And the audience has this unusual reaction. Yeah. Now this time, Ben still had a few films under his belt, but he really wasn't that recognizable face that we all have come to love and know today. Um, And John Favreau, of course, you know, he wasn't the big MCU Star Wars director (laughs) that we now know, having just made Swingers. What was it like working with them so early in their careers? And if someone told you that they would go on what they would go on to do, would you have would you have even been surprised a little bit? Honestly, one thing that um, and now that I don't live in L.A., I'm not my finger is no longer on this pulse. But when you live in LA, actually you already know what's gonna happen in two years. So yeah, because projects take a while to set up and they take a while to get rolling and, and they're looking, they're attaching talent and they're, you know, so you hear what's happening for a year or two or three or four before it happens. Mm-hmm. So like nobody in LA is surprised when Brad Pitt becomes the next big thing or we, you know, like that we already know that's happened. You guys are the last to know the the right. viewing audience, and and then you might not agree. You know, you could see the thing we thought was going to blow you away and be like, eh. and then mm-hmm. we all get to be wrong. But I, I mean, John Favreau, he was the swingers guy at that time, but I understood that he was he was a he was a voice and a visionary, and Ben Stiller was also a voice and a visionary, much more dark, sarcastic version of it. But he had been around for a while. He had his own show. He had, you know, like, um, the, we were aware of him. And, and he also, he grew up there. I mean, he's second generation. So he, right. he was somebody everybody watched grow up, you know? Yeah. Um, they were both directors at the time. And the, they sat me down and told me I needed to become a director. Oh, and... Uh, yeah, so I really enjoyed working with them because I felt valued and seen and um, they made me feel equal. And, and I was smart enough to know that I was not their equal at that point, that they were already miles and miles ahead of me. That's cool yeah. to have that affirmation from people that have been directing to see that in you at that even at that stage before you saw it in yourself well and it was wisdom about how to handle your career about how to um be in charge of more and and do more for yourself not wait Mm -hmm. for the job to come around very cool 
1998, you joined Richard Dreyfuss again in the fantastic comedy Crippendorf's Tribe, which was also directed by Todd Holland, um, who directed your episode of The Larry Sanders Show. Uh, acting is a lot like day labor or just working a regular nine to five job where uh, it's 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 like day labor, not like a nine to five job. Okay, <laughs> you're you're with a different group of people on every job. You don't have that uh, advantage of being with you know building a, a like a second family, pretty much going to the same place every day. Do you is there like an appreciation when you come to a set or or when you get when you know you're you're starting a new acting gig and it's got familiar faces there is there is that like a different a different energy already to go going into it knowing that there's a rapport there it's actually one of the things i really love about working in louisiana because i get to work with the same people often and so you know you arrive on set not with the oh god what's it gonna you arrive instead looking around going oh who's here today who's here to you know because whether it was the recently departed carol sutton or somebody like um, Dane Rhodes or, you know, like there's some people that, Billy Slaughter, there's some people that are just gonna be on set probably, you know, they work all the time. And so I look for the familiar faces, um, but I've actually been really blessed. I've worked with Quentin four times, with Woody Harrelson twice, Juliette Lewis twice, Richard Dreyfus three times, John Schneider four times, uh, Michael Madsen twice. Um, Joe Crest, who, who's on Stranger Things, has been my husband twice. Uh, I, I've worked with the director Misty Tally on two shark movies. I've done, you know, like I, I've really had a, a a repeat visit career. You know, <laughs> that says a lot for your work. That, yeah. that you're, I mean, fool me once, shame on me. Like, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like there will, yeah. So that's that's that speaks to your uh, performances. That, I think it's amazing. Uh, now before we we're not we haven't left the nineties just yet, but uh, I, this is a more of a, a fan service favorite question for me here because I'll admit when we did our deep dive and we 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 told me that we were getting you on the show, I was like I know who that is and I know where I know her from. I like how to go out. And so in nineteen ninety eight, also directed by Tony Scott, rest in peace, and starring Will Smith and Gene Hackman, you play. Krista Hawkins in Enemy of the State. Uh, let's take the opportunity to talk about the relationship between um, let, let's talk about that for a second here when you're an enemy of the state. What, what was it like being there? Tell us about the whole experience how that came about. That's another weird one. I was in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a bar waiting for a friend who was running late and, um, and before she got there, this guy came and started trying to chat me up and um, you didn't hit him on the head, did you? Do, did you, did you? <laughs> I did not. I'm not prone to violence. <laughs> I'm just making sure. I am, I am not. I don't take shit. <laughs> so, um, but yes, yeah, so um, he starts talking to me about the National Security Agency. And he's going on and on about the National Security Agency. Well, at this time, no one knew about the National Security Agency. No one. And so we're playing this game of, did you know? Well, did you know? Well, did you know? Well, did you know? Well, did you know? And finally I stop him and say, why do you know anything about the NSA? And he's like, well, uh, I'm writing a script about it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Cause you know, everybody's writing a script about something in LA. And, um, and then he goes, well, how, how do you know all this? And I said, well, my dad runs it. And he stopped caring whether or not 
he could hit on me and instead was like, wait, what? <laughs> and so um, he wanted to meet with me and pick my brain and, you know, see maybe I think if he could get closer to my father and things like that. So he turned out to be the writer of Enemy of the State. Oh, man. He wow. is how I met Ivana Chubbuck. He took me to Ivana Chubbuck's class to audit it. And that was how I got my last and, and went forever. I mean, she was basically my entire LA experience acting teacher and coach. Um, I mean, I had a few before her, but she was the one that I just, I, I think worked best for me. Uh, he also introduced me to Marilyn Black who became my manager. And then he introduced me, he set up a meeting for me to meet with Tony Scott. And so I don't know what he told Tony, but I show up in this empty office building on a weekend, already scary, begin, sounds like the beginning of a Me Too story, but isn't. Um, and, uh, and I arrive and he's smoking. None of the lights are on, it's daylight out, but none of the lights are on. And he is sitting in this sort of darkened giant office, toting on a cigar token on this cigar and, and there's smoke billowing around very much like one of his movies. Yeah. And, and we're visiting and chatting. And at some point he goes, you know, you're not at all what I thought you'd be. And I said, Oh really? What did you think I would be? And he goes, well, I, I thought your dad was a nerd and you'd be the daughter of a nerd. And I said, well, what do you think now? And he said, now I think you're Krista. And mm. I said, Oh, who's that? <laughs> you know, like, so, um, I went through a grueling audition process, uh, and I hired Ivana to coach me and I, I worked my butt off to get that part because I knew that, um, that it would, it would change everything. It was an amazing film, yes. Yeah. I mean, everybody is in it. Everybody is in it. And you'll notice that my credit is seventh, which was the only thing I asked for, um, because back then we didn't have the internet IMDB uh, listings for actors. We had these big movie guides. And if you were not in the first eight credits, you wouldn't be listed. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted my credit seventh so that, you know, Jason Robards and all them, they could all be behind me. <laughs> so. All right, let's take this opportunity to talk about the relationship between an actor and a director. Uh, Golden, Golden Globe nominee Dennis Christopher said about you, she wants to know what director wants. Every director has a different approach, but they all want the same thing from you at the end of the day. A fantastic performance. You've actually directed a short film, and we'll discuss that in a moment here. Uh, but I want to ask you, you actually get to speak from both sides of the equation. What do you think promotes the most positive results in an actor's approach to receiving direction? Well, I've actually directed three short films, um, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I did get to ghost direct a little bit on a feature, but I'll, I'll leave that out. Um, I, um, I think when you're the actor, the trick is to listen and be open. And I would say that's true whether you're an actor at a job or you work at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. You have to listen and be open. And uh, I think one thing that, and try stuff, just try stuff dare to fail you know just do do whatever the director said to do just to get it done and then you can do it your way on the next take but um you're not the only authority on the character and i think a lot of actors get very bent on the idea of like but my character would never do that really 
because the writer said they would. So maybe <laughs> you don't know your character very well because the writer who spent maybe years working on this mm -hmm. says you would do that. And the director is directing you to do it. So instead of coming from a place of my character would never do that, you have to come from a place of why would my character do that? Yeah, mm -hmm. I like yeah. that. That's very good. And justify like it. it, you know, figure it out, do the work, that's acting. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there are other authorities as well. I write in my book, my book is very practical and it has lots and lots and lots of information in it for working actors, but you know, the makeup and wardrobe people might know more than you do about your character. I remember when I showed up for Queen Sugar and saw the wardrobe, I was like, oh, she's not who I had pictured her to be. She was who I thought she was as a person, but she wasn't who I had pictured her to be as a presentation of herself. Mm -hmm. And so rather than me tell, you know, wardrobe and hair and makeup that they don't know their jobs since they've been doing them for years before I come along, um, I thought, okay, so let me ask them questions about how they came to the conclusion that this is what she wears and this is how her makeup is. And this is how, you know, at some point they had me wearing like a jerry curl look. I have curly hair and they had me do a jerry curl look. And I thought, well, that's curious. I'm like one of three white people on this show and I have a jerry curl. <laughs> so, you know, would that have been my choice for that character? No, but then when I looked at where that character's coming from, I absolutely could see why that was her choice. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I mean, especially like when you're working on a set like um, like Quentin Tarantino's where there's hundreds of people in the cast and crew. If everybody like you have you have one person that wrote the recipe essentially, and if people are veering off, if the ingredients are getting you know, it it could easily throw off the whole cake. Well, and that is one of the things, though, is that I've been blessed to work with people who really know their work. And so it's better for me to question myself than them in that case. If you're working with somebody, you know, like if you're working with student filmmakers or whatever, I think it's okay to ask those questions. But at the end of the day, even if you're working on a student film, the whole point of that would be to help them become better directors. Yeah. And uh, so just trampling all over somebody's ideas is not making them better at their job. That's a great, yeah, it's a great way to look at it. So now with the advantage of 25 years of practice under your belt, if you could send a message back to 30 year old Laura who's getting her first roles, what would your biggest critique be to that actor? Actor, You know, I, I, I wrote it in my book that I think that this is the right answer to this because I have a lot of answers to that question and they change every day. Well, that's awesome that you have multiple answers for it. I mean, that means you're humble. Well, I, because I do, I think, I, I mean, the whole point of this, you know, journeys around the sun thing is, you know, that we call life is, is that you learn new stuff every time. My, my mom compares it to climbing a mountain where uh, if, you, if the mountain's super steep, which, you know, I, I'm doing a job that less than 1% of people make enough money to survive. So I'm in the same group as Tom Cruise. So that's a hard thing to do. And uh, so if you're going to climb a steep mountain, that if you're in a car and you're going up a, a really big, tall mountain, you can't just go straight up the mountain. You have to drive around and around and around and around and around. So you 
might come to the southeast corner again and be like, oh my God, I already saw this view. I already saw all this. And think life is just doing you the same over and over and over. But each time you're seeing it from a little higher, a little better perspective. Mm -hmm. And if you just remember that, that even though it seems like, oh my God, haven't I done this before? That each time you're coming from a little better perspective, a little higher, that 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 helps. So for me, the, the answer to your question today would be the lesson of the hundred auditions, <laughs> which, which I write a lot about in my book. Uh, the lesson of the hundred auditions is, is uh, basically the short end of it is that if I had known that the 104th commercial audition I went on would be the one that I would book, then wouldn't I at 97 auditions failing been like, woohoo, 97 is over. Get on, there's 98, bring on 98. And I wouldn't have been like, oh my God, 97 auditions and nothing. This is not, I'm just not. you know, like I wouldn't have despaired. Yeah. So it's just the perspective of not knowing which one is going to be the one. That's where all the anxiety is coming from. It's not coming from whether or not you're good enough or all that. It's coming from not knowing which one's your job. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It I does. Mean, it, it, yeah. Like you're working. It's, I guess it's easier in hindsight when you know that, that the, the light at the end of the tunnel was coming when you're in the thick of the tunnel, it's like complete darkness until bam, there it is. Right. What if you quit at 103 and you, and 104 was your magic number? Right. Yeah. That is, wow. I think out of all the guests that we've interviewed, I think there's been one common theme and the thing that they all said in this industry, you'll, you'll always get more no's than yes. So you got to keep getting your no's to get the more yeses. So, I mean, you got to build them up, build up your credit, people. Right. So in 1999, you started an episode of Fantasy Island with Malcolm McDowell. Now he is known for being such a courageous and bold uh, performer. What was it like working with him? Well, sadly, I didn't have a bunch of scenes with him. I mean, you know, Lauren Holly was the one who had gone to get her fantasy fulfilled. And I played Lauren Holly's best friend. So I, my scenes were mostly with Lauren and Brian McNamara. Um, but I will say that experience overall was fabulous. I, it was shot in Hawaii, which was <laughs> wonderful. Polly Shore was in the episode who was in my acting class. So we were buddies and Lennox Lewis was in that episode and he was a hoot. Um, I mean, he's a boxer, not an actor. So we have a great, I have a great story about that if you had a more, more time, but, um, but you're asking about Malcolm McDowell and um, I didn't get to work with him that much, but I did hang out with him in his trailer a lot. <laughs> he was, he was a character and I like characters. I, I, you know, I ran away and joined the circus. And, and so why would I not hang out with the, <laughs> the people who are so fascinating that people pay money to look at them. Yeah, true. So, what he yeah. did in, in Clockwork Orange was just amazing to me. Uh, that, that, he's that, so brave. Yeah. He's so brave. So, I mean, that, that shot with the eyes being open, that like they literally did that. Man, this was pre-special effects, and he just laid there and took it. Not that I did not know. When I think of Sam Raimi, the, before I did the deep dive on you, I would have never put Sam Raimi with a romantic sports drama film um but he did for the love of the game uh starring kevin costner um in the movie uh, let's just say your scene has a happy ending um i was curious when you're when you're doing a scene like that what measures are taken on set to 
to keep a, a level of professionalism? Well, I, I actually have to take the blame for that scene because it was originally written that my hand was supposed to go under the towel on his back, that I was massaging his back and then my hand would go under the towel and that would be the moment. Mm -hmm. I was a friend of Kevin's and we ran the rehearsal and then we broke for lunch and I pulled him aside and said, Kevin, you don't want them to shoot it like that. And he said, why? And I said, cause your face is like this on the thing and, and you look like a wrinkle man. And he said, well, what do we do? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess flip you over. I don't know. We, we have to rework this, but this can't be my idea. I'm a nobody, you know, I'm just telling you, go look in the mirror, do this in the mirror and see if that's what you want. And so we come back from lunch and, oh, everything's being reset. And, oh, Laura, can we talk to you? Here's a, we have a new idea and we'd like to run it by you. And I was like, oh, okay. So I've never told this story publicly because of course it's all been movie magic until this moment. But yeah, this is what really happened. So we go to shoot it and Sam is probably one of the dearest people I've ever met in my life and, and a little prudish. <laughs> and so when it came to the moment for the hand to slip under the towel, I don't know why I didn't do the math that that's of course gonna have a different body part in my hand. Maybe Kevin did the math, but uh, he didn't. Yeah, yeah I, I like how he was real coy about it. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Like, when you were bringing it up, he's like, well, what, what do we do? I mean, there's only one other thing to do here. If you're not on your back, or if you're not on your stomach, you're on your back. What do we do? about my friend's face, you know? Like, I wasn't thinking it the whole way through. So then it turns into all these conversations about how much credit to give him as I'm moving my hand. Because, you know, if you move your hand too much, it seems like you are making him into a, a rather, you're giving him too much credit. And if you don't move your hand enough, you're not giving him enough credit. And so, uh, you know, we had to work out all this and Sam just was blushing and in a corner and didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so it wasn't at all what I'm used to. What I'm used to is that I've spent a lot of my career in my underwear and including that movie, and I'm used to people being pretty rough about it, you know, um, expecting me to be a good sport. And that's what I do. I just show up, I be a good sport and I, and I hope nothing goes seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and this was nothing like that. This was, um, it, it was like, he was so sensitive. He was so sensitive to the entire situation. <laughs> it's so ironic that Sam Ramy, who who spit 75 gallons of blood into an actor's face <laughs> on Evil Dead is pretty, but oh, a little sexy stuff. That makes me uncomfortable. He's so dear. I'm telling you, he's one of my favorite people I ever worked with. And I would love to work with him again. Sam, if you're listening, I'd love to work with you again. He was amazing to work with. He was like so, he loves movies and he's so kind and he's, He's very thoughtful and he's a very, very good actors director. He really knows how to talk to actors. And, um, and I think that's because like Quentin, he used to be an actor. Yeah, when I, I watched all the behind the scenes documentaries on Evil Dead and that was something that I really appreciated about him was he has this, like when he's, when he's working on a film, he just has like, he's just joy is all over him. He just seems so happy to be doing what he's doing. 
And I yeah. guess the prudish thing kind of makes sense because even Evil Dead, it's still, it goes back to slapstick, Three Stooges style. So there's this innocence to all the blood and gore that's happening. It's almost so over the top that it's, that it's animated or cartoonish. <laughs> Now, from 1999 to uh, 2001, you star in Martial Law, The Pretender, Jag, Meeting Daddy, Baby Love, and Anaconda. I said this right 30 <laughs> times before we did. Okay. You, know, you, say, I, you notice I looked at him before he said it because I knew. Because I got it right all before rehearsal and he got it wrong. I'm like, I'm going to kill this. I got it. So, okay. Um, could you, all right. So, for everybody, I heard, no, I want to get that right. You're not going to do me like that. Thank you. <laughs> Anacardium. 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 Ah, there we go. All right. Thank you so much. Now, I feel like a lot of the time I should have been researching that more, but the actors who bring supporting roles to life put more thought into the character than the writer has. What is your approach to that? Like turning, as you say, in the, as you've said before, and we and he taught me uh, this when we did our research, you said you quoted this, turning minutes into moments, because that really struck a nerve with me in a very good way. It's like, you must, you must really harness every moment and make it yours. Well, and frankly, a minute is a ton of time in screen world. You know, a minute is, I mean, think of when you have to cut a minute and you're working on a film. Have you guys ever had to cut a minute out of a film? You yeah, he's, he's cut me out of a film before. So yeah, he's had to cut a minute yeah. or two. You'd rather cut your nose off than cut that one minute out. So, you know, it, it, it's a lot of time. But um, I, my, I was deeply influenced by my very first feature film working with Shirley MacLaine I watched her steal a scene right out from under all of us with no dialogue. And when I watched her do that, she had no lines whatsoever in the scene. She was supposed to be basically a background person in the scene. And she stole the entire scene out from under all of us. And I watched her do it. And I could see what she was doing as she was doing it. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. you can give yourself permission to just steal the whole scene. And I thought, well, First of all, uh, Shirley will be the last person to do that to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give myself permission to own my time. And I, I do. I give myself permission to be unforgettable. I give myself permission to be a whole person in a moment, captured. And um, I think it boils down to you have to do, you have to do the scene. You have to do what's written. But I think, I think actors don't spend enough time understanding the scene, understanding like, what is, why did the writer put this in here? Especially if it's a small part. Yeah. Why did it survive all the cuts at all the different uh, you know, levels that it went through of rewrites? And why are the producers willing to pay to film it? You know, like what, what is this scene's purpose? What, what happens here that moves the story forward or that, helps us understand a character that is probably a different character than my own, because I'm always next to some gargantuan Oscar-winning, you know, he <laughs> got or something. So, um, you know, for me, it's like figuring out how the scene works and, and then facilitating that, facilitating what the scene was meant to do. And by doing that, I often hear back from directors and writers that I put stuff in there they didn't even know was in there. And I'm like, well, but it was in there. It was in there. I just, I've, I found it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's, I mean, those are the best movies where even the supporting actors, they, they approach it with the same intensity and nuance that the leads do. And you get 
I mean, that's where the gold is. It's they're right. not treating it like some two dimensional prop. They're a human being living in it, ex existing in this world too. That is a perfect segue to talking about your book, uh, No Small Parts. And uh, I love the title like that. The especially the the guests that we have on that is uh, the um. Who, who's the guy we talked to? Jeff Jeff Kahn was on for Tropic Thunder, and he suggested that we call the show. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, um, he he said that we should call the show Hollywood Adjacent because we talked to so many people who are like right there on the cusp. Um, but that, so that that title really spoke to me. Uh, um, I'll take that. <laughs> it was uh, so this was published in two thousand and twelve as a guide for actors. And before we go into it, I'm going to drop a clip here for the teaser from your uh, channel. Based on 25 years in the industry as an actor, producer, writer, and director, No Small Parts is real-life advice from someone who's lived it. The foreword is written by Academy and Golden Globe winner Richard Dreyfuss, and the book has been endorsed by Kevin Costner, Lou Diamond Phillips, Reginald Hudlin, and many more. The second edition of No Small Parts has been completely updated to reflect changes in technology and the industry. Rewritten during the COVID-19 pandemic, new chapters include a comprehensive look at self-taping and a chapter on Me Too issues covering what to do if you witness an incident or experience harassment. There are also a few new chapter sections, including an in-depth look at signing conventions the book also reveals personal, often funny, stories from the author's own journey, turning minutes into moments and moments into a career. All right, you've written a series of mystery novels since, but no small parts. And again, that's K-N-O-W for all you guys out there. Uh, it seems personal. And what was your, tell us, what was your motivation? What, you, what, you, what was your motivation from taking it of, you seeing these things and finding these things to saying, I'm now going to put this in a book because you did say you're a teacher. So was that the motivation part part behind it, wanting to teach? Well, first of all, I did want to say my if you were to look at my um, mystery novels, they're pretty personal as well. They're actually very behind the scenes and they're they're and they have a lot of my life here in New Orleans sort of tucked in there, which is nice. Um, but No Small Parts is a nonfiction book and it's a, it is. Um, it came directly out of working on Django. Uh, I, I think by the end of this, you'll realize I give Quentin a lot of credit for a lot of things that I've chosen to do with my life. But um, I, I had thought about, you know, writing a nonfiction book, but it wasn't on acting. And then while I was doing Django, that every day I had very similar downtime to the people playing the house slaves who were predominantly local actors. And, um, and so, I, you know, many of them are now my friends and we'll be friends till we die because we all live here. Um, so, you know, there, there was a lot of camaraderie between the house slaves and they, I would sit there listening to them having these discussions about how to figure out stuff about acting that for me was really simple, like, so simple I would have hard time describing it because it'd be like trying to tell somebody how to drive a clutch. You know, it was something, it was so second nature to me. And, and they were so baffled by so many things. And I realized, I remembered actually, it's not even realized, I remembered being them. I remembered being 
in the dark and that books were what I used as a weapon system. You know, I was a college person. So for me, books were where you found information. And um, so I, I, I started answering their questions, but I started going home and writing them down and thinking, these are the questions people need answered that I didn't even, I don't even remember asking these questions anymore, but these are the questions that are simple for me to answer that are really, really useful to a huge amount of people. Mm -hmm. And, and then I kept going and started asking myself things that I would notice that were coming up with Leo or were coming up with Sam Jackson or were coming up, you know, like just the workaday life of being an actor, the, experience of showing up on a set and having no idea to where to report or what you're supposed to do or when do you put on your wardrobe or you know like all these really simple practical questions and and then further down the road how do you get a free dress for the red carpet everybody seems to be able to do that how do you do that like I don't know just everything just everything was a mystery when I started out and and by the time I'm sitting around listening to those conversations it was all like easy for me. <laughs> and so I wrote that book while I was shooting. Hmm. That's awesome. So uh, Lou Diamond Phillips said that you found a way to bottle lightning or put lightning in a bottle. Yes. Um, with that, I don't, don't want to get- By the way, can we just have a moment for Lou? Love Lou. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, La Bamba. I, I know who you're talking about. I, I know, I wasn't looking at you. I was just like, you know, I knew you knew. <laughs> Okay. I don't I don't want to give too much away that is in the book because we want interested people to pick the book up. But is there could you give us like a snippet of the kind of information like I know you just kind of went over the overview, but maybe just like one of the one of the tips of the of the trade that you have in there? Well, first of all, it is actually uh, you couldn't possibly already know everything in that book just from this interview because I just added seventy brand over seventy brand new pages in my second edition, which now okay. includes a chapter on self taping since that's kind of where we're at. And and this is here to stay. The self taping thing is not going anywhere. And um, yeah, because it makes casting so much easier for so many people. Um, not necessarily the actors, but so many other people. Uh, so, and then the, um, uh, I have a chapter on Me Too issues, you know, if, if, if it happens to you, if you see it, if you witness it, if somebody comes to you and says, what do I do, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and also conventions, because when I started out, conventions were where careers went to die. And now it's where you launch Wonder Woman. You know, it's, it's a big damn deal to be in a convention. So I added a lot about that as well. But the thing that I think most actors get wrong, well, first of all, there's the premise. The premise is that I am meant to be famous and that all I need to do is get an agent and then I will be discovered and then I will be famous. And uh, first of all, I am not interested in famous it means people go through your garbage and care who you date and i am not willing to give up that part of my life i uh, the privacy part i was gonna say the garbage of the dating we didn't <laughs> the garbage of the men and all of it <laughs> i'm just not willing to have you care that way about me yeah um yeah it's too big a it's too big a thing and it's not it has nothing to do with acting um 
One person you didn't quote from my book is Kevin Costner, who, who says very, very loud and proud that I'm always about the work. And that's true. I will say that is a true thing. I am always about the work. Um, but I think this thing that people get wrong is they think like nobody thinks, oh, if I if I wanted to be uh, NFL football player, I would just like go buy a football and then get an agent and be in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. But they do seem to think that you could like go get an agent and get discovered and then you'll get an Academy Award and the cover of People magazine. And none of that is related. Yeah. And so I think the biggest mistake that uh, actors make or aspiring actors make, but all actors make, is making it about your agent. I spent most of my career in LA. I was there 18 years. And most of the time I was there, I did not have an agent for film and television. I had one for commercials. So that was half my income and kept my bills paid. But I did not have an agent for film and television. And I had a manager for six years, but that leaves out 12 more years. I mean, uh, what? yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> I had to do math. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's if you're looking for fame and celebrity, there are far better avenues to right. achieve that quickly. Like being so good, they hire you over and over. Like yeah. being so wonderful to work with that they hire you over and over. Like making people inspired to work with you. As yeah. Richard Dreyfus says and is quoted in that book, make it so they can't sleep at night. Make it so they can't sleep at night thinking of ways to put you in their movie. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe in. Yes. Now, Reginald Humlin, the producer on Django Unchained said, you are a working actor that also has a happy and well-balanced life. I noticed this as what, while I was researching you, you seem to be a very grounded and involved individual where you live in New Orleans while also managing to stay busy as an actor, as you seem very, very happy. Uh, talk about that balance between, I think you kind of just both spoke on it as I was listening to you. It's like, you never got into it to be famous. You, you were happy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. That's a huge part of it is that my goals were not, uh, the kinds of goals that that are like a drug addiction where you just keep chasing that dragon and it's never going to really make you happy um i my goals were always about the work and uh that said i had trouble being happy in la i i value happiness it's something important to me I and mean, it's written in our constitution i think it's it's worth pursuing mm -hmm. um so I care about happiness and I kept meeting people in LA who really, that wasn't a value system. And mm -hmm. I cared about um, community and feeling a part of, of the group, the uh, citizenry of my community and my city. And, and I didn't really, I mean, I lived in LA longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. And I never felt like I was part of that city. I, I don't, I don't know who the people were that were running it. I didn't know what were the problems with their budget or, you know, I, cause I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't care whether they had potholes. I didn't care. You know, if it didn't bother me, it didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And because it, it was just where my job was. It wasn't that I cared about that city. And so that's, that's one thing that's changed a lot is new Orleans has always been, if home is where the heart is, this has always been my heart's home. My family's mm -hmm. from Louisiana for hundreds of years. And, 
And this is where, you know, I think every city is weird and every person is weird. And so you have to just find the place where you're weird and the city's weird meet up. <laughs> yeah. And me and New Orleans are in agreement that you should wear colored wigs for no reason and uh, celebrate tomatoes. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're in agreement that that's, that's important. Um, I belong to a dance troupe called the Pussyfooters. Um, and it's over a hundred women who are over the age of 30 and we dance in the Mardi Gras parades, except this year. Um, and we, uh, participate in over 50 nonprofit events annually, although not this year again. Um, and, and we, we parade year round. We, we parade in the Christmas parade, the Halloween parade, the, you know, all sorts of things. Um, that sense of sisterhood and community, you know, I, I mean, that's not normal in LA. I created versions of that in LA. I created a group of women called the support hose. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we would meet once a week and set goals and check in with each other and do troubleshooting and all that. But you know, that was something I forced into being. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of the sense of community I had in LA, I forced into being, I, I made it happen so that I could feel happy there, but it, it's not part of how that city operates. Whereas, it's the only way New Orleans can survive is with community. You don't yeah. get through things like Katrina without community. That's yeah. when you when you moved from Los Angeles to Louisiana. Was that a similar feeling of like having to start from ground zero again? Yes and no, because um, when I moved to L.A., I had actually literally seen it on TV. I had never been to L.A. I had never. I, I had no idea what it was. And back then, you know, pre-technology, it's hard to get around a place like LA. We had a thing called the Thomas Guide that was, I don't know, four or 500 pages of, of maps. And you had to be a scholar to figure out how to get from one place to another. And, and I already told you, people out there weren't. <laughs> so, you know, it was a complicated way to live. It was full of roadblocks that were really just even just to get from here to there was hard. Everything was sort of set up to be hard. And it's kind of like how Ivy League schools are set up where the freshman classes are designed to flunk out the people who aren't going to make it anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, LA was like that where it was sort of set up in a way of like, if you can't handle the day-to-day -day life of LA, you, you probably aren't, aren't in the right place for, anyway. You probably shouldn't be trying to be an actor because if you think living in LA is rough, wait till you try being an actor, you know? So I don't know. I also like for me, when I was in LA, all the conversations were about movies. All the things we all wrote were screenplays. All the things that we made our recreation about were film-oriented, everything, everything was film-oriented. And I really enjoyed being immersed in that culture. It was really important for my growth as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, as an actor, to be so like deep dive into that world. Yeah. Um, but now I get to write books just like I thought I would when I was a kid. Mm. And I get to teach like I thought I would when I was a kid. <laughs> and um, and I still get to do what I love for money, except not this year. Everything's except not this year. Um, yeah. 
but I, you know, I really, uh, I am going to get to parade next week. I heard I'm going to get to parade oh, in place. They're going to do a drive-through parade and I'm going to get to parade in place. It's a reverse parade. The, the watchers. Are just, okay. I'm far too excited about it. I'm way too excited about it. Cause it's going to be miserable and masked and all that, but it's totally distanced, whatever, just waving at cars going by, but whatever. I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of Mardi Gras. Yeah. So, but it's that, it's that being a part of, of, when you're in the movie industry, when you're actually working, you get to have that feeling of being part of a community. Mm-hmm. But I, I figured out that about myself is that I, I need to feel like I'm with my people. Yeah. And I found my people in LA and I made a little, you know, group in LA that was for me, but it required so much labor to make it Sorry, be what it was. Whereas here, it just is already set up. You just walk out your door and you're part of the community. Yeah. I, li- I really like what Richard Dreyfus said in that video on your page where he was talking about, you know, some of the best actors, they're not, you don't, they don't have to be in Hollywood. They could be in a, in a small theater all across the country. You'll find uh, great actors in a community where you can grow as an actor. And now I get, more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they, uh, so uh, I love the, the, the like the subtitle of your book, the turning minutes in the moments. Um, and I wanted to ask, I know you kind of, you kind of talked about how you, you were never going to let that happen again. Um, but what, what is your approach to when you have a supporting role and you only have so many, you're only on the screen for a certain period of time. What, like, how do you go about turning those, like making the most out of, out of, what you're given i spend a lot of time on preparation i will say that that's something that a lot of directors that have worked with me have noted and and been impressed by is that i spend a a lot of time on preparation um i respect the material but i bring my own ideas and i dare to fail and i try to leave it all on the floor i will tell you that for for me and i know i'm not alone with this the most agonizing moment is not when you don't get the job. That's normal. The most agonizing moment is when you got the job and you're driving home and you go, oh, why didn't I this? Why didn't I that? And the job's already over. Mm-hmm. So I won't, I don't want that for myself. I don't want to spend car rides full of regret uh, going home from jobs where I should feel victorious. I should feel like, I just worked with all these people doing this amazing stuff. I worked so hard to get there and then I got there and I did a good job and I shouldn't be sitting there going over what I could have done and didn't do. That's preparation work. Oh, you prep, what can I do? And what, then you get on the set and you try things and let them tell you, no, don't do that. Don't have your own sensor be like, no, don't try it. No, don't try it. Just, you know, and if you think it's something that's not going to be okay, you can, talk to people <laughs> like I remember I did a movie Anacardium Anacardium which became deranged um when I was doing Anacardium it was the very last day of shooting and I'd been on that there were only like three main characters in the whole movie and so I'd been on that you know from pretty much run of, of show and and we're shooting the last moment with me and 
I said to the director, I, after we shot the take that as written, I said, do you have that? Are you satisfied? Do you have it the way you want it? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you mind if I do one for me? It's just an idea I have. And he was like, yeah, you want to run it by me? I was like, no, if, if it's okay to burn, you know, a couple of inches of film on me, I'd, I'd like to just do one. And he said, okay. And this is back when we used film. So it was expensive. It was a, it was an ask. But I had earned it by then. I had worked really hard to show him that I might possibly have a good idea. So I changed the entire movie by making one gesture. And when I was, when the director yelled cut, the whole set went, whoa. <laughs> and, and then the director, Scott, looked at me and he was like, well, now what? Now decide which movie I just made. And so we ended up having both endings at um, Slam Dance Fest, which happens in the same place at the same time as Sundance. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he showed both endings and had the audience vote, but he had already decided he was going with my ending. So that movie is rewritten by one gesture I made at the end of the movie. That's amazing. Well, that's, that's turning a minute into a movie. <laughs> there you go. Wow. I, I really just listening to you. I really wish wish more actors took the time to really prepare and do it. As you like you say, the preparation and the craft, because I think they miss out on it. We've been on set with actors before and they're like, no, I know my line. I read the script like, no, you know your line. But how can you truly know your line, your character, if you don't know what the other principles are doing? Either the people in the back or why do we switch scenes, things you've already mentioned. So um, well, it's not about lines. If it were about lines, Marlon Brando wouldn't have had a career. Boom. Thank you. Thank you. You got to gotta feel it, man. You definitely have to feel it. And I, I want to ask you this, and I know the answer, because technically you, you, you answered it an hour ago, because you are the perfect example, which is you also teach acting through seminars, speaking engagements, and coaching. Do you, Laura, think that anyone can learn to act? Actually, I had to kind of put that to the test once. I was, um, I told you I directed three shorts. Well, one of them, um, we needed to hire a bunch of models. I'm sure that's very disappointing news for you that there's a film out there that I've shot that has a bunch of models in it. But in any case, um, I, I met a girl at a gas station and she was six foot, uh, just, I mean, she was just the most beautiful, you know, she was striking and I just couldn't let the moment pass. So I, we were both blowing air into our tires and I went and said to her, I said, you know, are you an actor? And she's like, well, I'd like to be, but no, not really, you know. And I said, well, can I come have you read for this thing? So I, I literally took her off the street. And um, I did that with a couple other girls in that project that I, that they were not trained, but they were, they were models. And I thought, well, I, I, I started as a model that could happen. And uh, Rene Russo started as a model. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there are plenty of us who, who have come from that background where all you were was a look and used to being in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. And so I, I would say that in the case of if you're willing to work with the actors, if you're a director who knows how to speak to an actor, and not about the result you want, because that is not gonna, if you tell a professional actor, 
a results driven direction, like be less sexy or whatever, they might roll their eyes at you, but they'll do their best. If you tell an untrained actor, they're not going to process that through their brains and go, oh, so I need to find intentions that that are different that make it appear this way. Not like suddenly I'm going to button up my shirt or something and be less sexy. You know, like that's not. Yeah. So, so if you are the kind of director, you know who did it brilliantly, who proved that it can be done? The guy who directed Beast of the Southern Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that movie was nominated for Best Director, Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress, and it didn't have one name involved mm. in any level of the production. Yeah. And, and that's the only time that's happened in the history of the Academy. So is that normal? No, but that guy, Ben did pull it off. So it can be done if you're that guy, Ben, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I don't think that everybody's an actor. I don't think that. I think a lot of people, first of all, do not like cameras and uh, they don't enjoy that thing of being watched. They don't enjoy being judged and they sure as heck don't want to be told they're doing it wrong. And they don't like failure. They don't like job interviews. They don't like, if you, if you don't like any of these things, you're not going to like a whole lot about acting because this, this is the list. This is the list of what it is. You don't like waiting around doing nothing for hours while you are totally prepared to do the biggest thing in your entire life, but you can't get tired. You can't get ugly. You can't, you can't even like, you have to drink through a straw because you can't mess up your makeup. You can't sit down like a normal person because you're going to get wrinkles all over your clothes. You can't, like, it is a, it's a whole business of you can't. You can't have nail polish. You can't, you know, like, everything is you can't, you can't, you can't. Yeah. So if you love acting and it's something that, uh, that appeals to you, I think then you could become Quavangene Wallace and, and find that, oh, I guess I am an actor. Or Dwight Henry, who not only is a terrific actor, but makes really amazing buttermilk drops. <laughs> so that's how we know him. We know him as the donut guy. So um, that's how I got the part. He served him donuts every day. And then they kept auditioning people. And then finally they were like, well, I guess you could read for it. So, that's awesome. <laughs> so it can be done, but I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's for everybody. And certainly the lifestyle is for almost nobody. This is a terrible lifestyle. <laughs> so. Keep telling you, man. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the book, it sounds great. Like for, especially talking to you about it, you go from audition to red carpet and beyond like holding somebody's hand through this process and letting them know what to expect and how to navigate that. I know that the book is available along with your mystery novels on Amazon, but I wanted to make sure before we put the information out there, if there's somewhere else you prefer people pick the book up from where maybe you get more of that cut. Well, first of all, I think this is like one of your kindest questions is that you would worry about whether I make this amount of dollars or that amount of dollars off my book. So thank you for that. But I'm gonna pay it forward and say that if you aren't gonna buy it on Amazon, I would hope that it's because you're ordering it through your local bookshop and helping them stay alive during the COVID. Perfect. Because I, I make actually like only half the amount of money if you do that. But, um, you know, I value our local bookshop is just down the street and they carry my books signed and you can ask for them from there with shipping. But um, 
I, I just feel like local bookshops are a very important part of every community. And so I would say, if you're not going to put the money in my pocket, then help me split it with them. <laughs> right. Off the top of your head, do you know that, do you remember the name of the bookshop in your, in your area? And my community is Garden District Bookshop. And you what can definitely order from Garden District Bookshop and they have signed copies. And, and because I live so close to them, if you were to order something personalized, they could probably call me and have me come and personalize it for you. So, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, right. yeah. But, but you can order it from your own. You can order it from Barnes and Nobles near your house. You can order it from any bookshop would carry it. I mean, would bring, would order it in for you. Awesome. That's amazing. Make sure we follow up on that. Thank you so much. Now, in 2004, you wrote and directed your first film, a short called Intermission. With someone who has acting experience, what was it like now directing and being behind the camera as opposed to in front of it? Directing is a sticky wicket for me to talk about because I loved everything about it. And it was the, I, I have a very big, busy, busy brain and it likes to chew on stuff. And, and Directing was the only activity I've ever done that used every single part of my brain. And so I loved it. I loved it. But um, I think I think at the end of the day, some of the actor in you, you know, you, you have to get your day done. <laughs> you have to get your day done and you have to be on time and under budget every day or else's start happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so it, it's, um, I think everything I bring to it as an actor helps me to talk to the actors and helps me to not give those result-driven directions, like, you know, be less funny or be, be less, be more sexy or whatever, you know? So I don't give those kinds of directions. I give more actable direction, but, um, but I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that acting is the only path to being good at directing. It's just that that's where I came from. And, it, and for me, it, I would say that writing was just as critical. Understanding why things are written the way they're written and understanding what each scene is for yeah. is at least as important as, as coming at it from an actor. I think being a writer really helps me as, a, as an actor as well because I, I break down the scene thinking of what the writer intended. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, in 2004, this is your first time working with Quentin Tarantino, uh, playing Rocket in Kill Bill Volume 2. Um, and since this episode is about Django Unchained, we will take a brief intermission uh, right here. Thank you. Yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, we'll take an intermission right there to talk about that relationship. So you've worked with Tarantino as, as an actor as well as a co-producer, and he has undoubtedly... He, he, like there, he's kind of up there with Sam Raimi. There is no doubt how much he loves film and just the whole process from beginning to end. What what's it like working with somebody like that on set? I hear Scorsese is a is a different version of that same cinephile, um, movie geek, but uh, it's infectious, is what it is in the best possible way. I know infection right now is sort of a bad word, but it's <laughs> infectious in the best possible way. You know, um, Sam loves movies and he respects the history of movies. And one thing that he and I had in common is that we both dressed for work. A lot of people wear sweatpants to work in our field. And especially because somebody else is gonna give you clothing and somebody else is gonna do your hair and makeup. And so why would you bother? Mm -hmm. 
why not just wear something that you can sit in the makeup chair in? Um, and I do, I'm always aware that I wear something where I can get it over my head without disturbing hair and makeup. But um, I dress for work. I, I wear clothes as if I'm going to work. And uh, Sam did that as well. He wore every single day, he wore a black jacket over whatever else he was wearing. And so he looked like a reservoir dog pretty much every day at work. <laughs> and I commented on it at some point and I was wearing a dress as I'm saying to him, you know, um, I, I keep noticing you dressing for work. And he talked to me about the glamor of Hollywood and how the industry was always seen as a place for glamor and that we, you know, we treat it like a gym locker and that he just didn't want to do that. And I, I, that was exactly how I felt was this was a profession I had worked super hard to be a part of. And why would I wear gym clothes to my, I'm not a gymnast. (laughs) Yeah, it made sense to me to wear actor clothes to my acting work, you know, and actor clothes are that you look nice. In 2008, you guys co-produced the film Hell Ride, which you also starred in, shared a scene with Michael Madsen again. And also Larry Bishop also acted in this uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. So it seems like there is an organic working relationship there. Can you talk to us about that? Because it kind of seemed like this came together with people who had all been, you know, intermingling, who had seven degrees of separation, whatever you want to call it. Well, I think it's funny that you spotted that from the couch. I I don't know how you figured that out from your vantage, but but you're absolutely right score. <laughs> You're absolutely 100% right. We, uh, I, I was over at Quentin's house and we were talking about biker movies. And um, I said something, of, or maybe he said something about Larry. I don't know who brought up Larry first, but somebody mentioned Larry Bishop, who is the son of Joey Bishop from the Rat Pack. And Larry Bishop had a um, long career as a biker Uh, back in the 60s and 70s in biker movies when they were very hot. And uh, and then he went on to play a biker type character on things like Laverne and Shirley. He's the one that hangs them on the hooks, you know, in the (laughs) opening credits. Anyway, so so Larry, um, Quentin or I, one of us brings up Larry and I say something about I know him and Quentin goes, you know Larry Bishop? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, wait, like, you know him, know him? Like, or do you like know him? And I was like, no, I know him, know him. I mean, I would call him right now. And he's like, you could call Larry right now? I said, yeah. And he said, okay. So I called him and I had, you know, as before we were all cell phone people. So it was the, I just called him because I knew his number and I dialed it on a phone (laughs) and, and said, hey, I'm calling from Quentin's house and we're talking about you which came of course as glorious news to a guy who hadn't worked in a while. And um, uh, I said, look, he's a huge fan of your biker movies. Um, he wants to do a, like a biker movie at the house and, and we'll all watch it together. So Quentin set up in his movie theater that he would show a, I think it was a double or triple feature of biker movies. And so, Larry and I show up and he has replaced all the, tr- the posters in his theater with Larry's movies. Nice. And yeah, and, and you know, you get to grab whatever candy and popcorn you want or whatever. And then we settle, settle in. He has made a trailer, a trailer reel of, I don't know, maybe at six or eight trailers of movies that Larry was in. 
And then we sit and watch uh, a couple of his movies. And when it was done, we sat and talked. And now at this point, it's like four or five in the morning. And we sat and talked about biker movies. And I hadn't, I, other than Easy Rider, which is not even considered traditionally a biker movie, um, I hadn't really understood the genre. And so we talked a lot about it. And finally, at some point, I'm there at the moment that Quentin looks at Larry and says, Larry, it is your destiny. It is your destiny to write, direct, and produce, no, write, direct, and star in the greatest biker movie of all time. So I am not gonna say that we made that movie, but that's what we were trying to do. <laughs> Talk about pressure. Like, like. That is a hell of a story. Yeah. We cast Michael Madsen that night. And so, yeah. So that night it was me, Larry and Michael were the original cast. And uh, Larry and I went to work on the screenplay. And, um, and you know, that's it. It's so cool that things like that still happen because it's so easy to be cynical about Hollywood that like, well, it oh, it's, but the fact that it just kind of organically was decided upon and there wasn't like, let me call my people and let me talk to, it was just, it was like inspired in the moment and, and came from that. I think that's very neat. Well, it does become that the, my people, your people thing. And that's what takes the seven years. So, um, yeah. It took seven years to get it made for a variety of reasons that include, you know, everything from the professional, like you're saying, my people, your people, conversations, lawyers, yada, 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 to things like a marriage blew up in the middle of it that was tangential to our, had nothing to do with our movie. It wasn't anybody involved in our movie, but that marriage blowing up involved one of our players having to stay on a project for a year longer than they should have because of the marriage going, you know, so like, many things went sideways many 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 things go sideways on every project you ever get involved in and this one you know everybody every every time you make a movie they think you should have made a movie about the making of that movie so yeah yeah, yeah. i mean even on a on an independent level where you know we make small feature films here from florida and it's that it's it's anxiety ridden going into it, especially when you have like a larger cast and crew. There's so many revolving lives that you have to rely on. All right, please for I, your, like. I, was, I, I had it. I have an old. I have an old man that is that is a reoccurring character in my movies, and every time I literally tell him like, just don't die for the I, next six months, yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> so I was producing a movie. I was producing a movie that I haven't shared any thing about because I was producing this movie. I was very excited about the project. It had a lot of really A-list amazing people involved. We were toting along, boop, 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 having it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we were getting, I was just signing contracts and my partner died. Died. Whoa. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it like, happens. A, it happens. It's like, God, Lee, wow. Yeah. It was his yeah. his movie, his project, and I was a co I mean, not a co I was the executive, you know, we were making this movie together. We were making this movie together. And he died. Yeah, they go, what a rascal. Wow, man, that is, <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> so that's when you're deep into the shit happens world, you know? Mm -hmm. So I noticed when I was looking at the IMDb, it kind of seems like you and Quentin Tarantino make a habit out of working together every time there's a presidential election. There's... <laughs> In 2012, you're uh, Laura, uh, Laura, 
Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilly. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. And Django Unchained sharing the screen with a plethora of Hollywood heavy hitters. How long were you on set for on that? And what was what was that experience like? I was on that movie for about five months. And it was the longest that I've been on a movie. I was I had the script way in advance because Quentin used to send me all of his scripts to read just to give notes and stuff. Yeah. And so when I got the script initially, I thought, I thought that's what it was. I was here in New Orleans, hadn't seen Quentin in a while. I get the script. I mean, we had talked, but I, you know, I get the script and I, and I just thought he wanted me to read it and give him notes. So I'm reading it and, and writing all over it and whatever. And, and, um, it was a 200 plus page script. And so I am deep in, I'm like on page 90 when I read Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilly, a 40-ish attractive strawberry blonde. I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> so I backed up 40-ish attractive strawberry blonde Southern Belle. Wait, what? And so that's when I really, and, and my name is, is very similar to the name. And, and yeah. I, yeah, I'm Laura Lynn Cayouette. That's Laura Lee Candy Fitzwillie. So I just was like, wow, I, is this for me? So I didn't, I didn't know if it was for me, but I had that script oh, at least a year before we shot. And, and then I went through the audition process um, and got the part. And then I had about five months between the time I was given the part and the time that I had to show up for work. Uh, no, I'm sorry, three months, three months before I got the part, something like that. So I had enough time to work on it for real. Like I used to, when I was in theater, I got to, um, develop the character. I got to write a diary for her and, and create a photo album for her and, um, you know, like a scrapbook and, I got to borrow a hoop skirt from the wardrobe department and walk around looking like an hole in my city you know, with my friend Dana, who plays Cora in the movie. And Dana and I are walking in. I'm wearing my hoop skirt. She's wearing petticoats. I'm wearing a Saints t-shirt with my hoop skirt, you know. She's like wearing regular clothes and this petticoats. And we're walking along with her holding an umbrella over me as tour buses are passing. I'm like, I don't even want to know what they're making of this. I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine what they're thinking of. There goes the white chick in the hoop skirt with the same <laughs> shirt. Yeah, in, in Los I Angeles. An with no one even blinking yeah, an eye. No one blinking an eye in LA, but yeah. <laughs> it was a little odd, but I got to really prepare, like really, really prepare. And so that was months. And then I got to shoot for five months and be her for five months. And so it was, it was probably the most grueling experience of my entire career, but certainly the most rich and gave me an opportunity to do what I do well. Yeah. And, and you, and you did, you did yes. that. You did do well. <laughs> yes, you did. Now, let me ask you a question. Now you're sitting at a table with Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, Samuel L. Jackson, and Kerry Washington. Now, if you were to write a film, and of course you were in the lead and you needed a co-lead out of those people at that table, who would you choose as an actor yourself that you think you had the most chemistry with? Or you, what would you, who would you choose? Well, first of all, I think this is a kind of a cruel question because then I have to pick a favorite kind of thing. 
but and you're talking about an entire table of Academy Award winners and nominees, BAFTA winners, yep. Emmy winners, Golden Globe winners. I mean, this the egos is like, have a long way to fall right now. <laughs> they're all tuning in now. You know, they're all people who, in their own way, are amazing. And and like Sam Jackson is the biggest box office of the entire history of cinema. Carrie mm-hmm. Washington had a brand new TV show come out while we were shooting called Scandal, <laughs> you know? So like there was all kinds of stuff. These are amazing people, amazing people who are truly great at what they do. But um, I'm, I'm gonna give you two answers, the one that you'd expect and then the one that, that you're, you weren't ready for. I, I pick Leo because um, I really, really enjoyed working with him. I had actually known him when he was a 16 year old because he, he was represented by an agency where I had a summer job as a receptionist. And so he and his dad used to come in and wait in the waiting room and I would hang out in the waiting room because that's where I worked. <laughs> so um, yeah, so they would hang out with me in the waiting room. And so I remember him as a, as a kid and that really helped me with my preparation uh, to play his older sister. And um, when he showed up right away, but certainly as the days wore on and and working on Quentin's movies, you have the longest days in the history of the world. Um, But working with him as the days wore on, it became very clear to me that he was like Chauvin Klein. He never let one millisecond of time go empty. He and Shirley MacLaine are the two only actors I've ever been so swept away by watching them live when we're supposed to be filming Mm -hmm. that I forgot we were filming. And I mean, at some point on Django, I'm at that table and I hear Quentin's voice going, Laura, Laura, you can say your line. And I was like, oh, right, I'm in this movie because I just got so... That's incredible. It was captivating. But the answer you're not ready for is that you left somebody off that table. Dennis Christopher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is at the yeah. table. Oh, my. Who I have been so blown away by since I was saw him as a kid in um, the Breaking Away movie. And mm-hmm. I will tell you that of everybody I was working with, he was the one that I was like, I can't believe I get to work with Dennis Christopher. <laughs> I couldn't wait to work with him. And, and we remain friends to this day, but um, I had met him one time at the Apple store and I, I'm not a fan person. I don't, I don't do the fan thing, but I like literally interrupted his business at the genius bar to say, pay attention to the fact that I'm madly in love with your work. You know, like I had to tell him, I had to say, you're amazing. I'm such a fan. And, uh, so yeah, Dennis Christopher, I've been a fan of since I was a kid and saw him in Breaking Away. I just thought he was a genius in that movie. He was so good. And so, and he's, he's like me, he's method trained, he's classically trained, he's theater trained, he's Shakespearean trained, he's, you know, he's hyper, hyper, hyper trained like me and, and trained in many of the same ways that I was trained. And he was the only other person at the table that was trained that way. Speaking of method trained, I know you leave the scene shortly before this happens, um, but what can you tell us about, I've heard that when Leonardo DiCaprio cut his hand, he kept performing. Can you speak on that at all? 
Well, that's all true. Everything you heard is true. Um, he, I, I was working that day, but I left right before that happened. And cause like I said, these days were super long. Mm -hmm. Um, and I spent them in a corset. So, uh, it was a lot with six pounds of hair on my head and you know, it was, it was a lot. I, 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 re I iced myself more in the time that I worked on that movie than in my entire career doing gymnastics and volleyball. Um, so I, I got a call saying, oh my God, you're not gonna believe what just happened. And so somebody called me from the set and told me um, the entire story. But I had already been watching the scene before I left. So I knew exactly which scene they were working on and exactly, I had been, I, you know, he's captivating. So I stayed and watched like three or four takes before I went home. But we shot that scene for like three weeks. You couldn't sit and watch all of it, you know? <laughs> like there's just too yeah. much. So at some point you have to say, an embarrassment of riches, I'm going home. So, um, so I went home and I get this call saying, oh my God, you're not gonna believe what happened. And, and they describe pretty much what you see on the screen, which is that he, he had been slamming his hand on the table and each time he slammed it, it was making this little cocktail glass jump and, and move a little teeny tiny bit. And so at some point he slammed his hands down and it had moved under where he put his hand. And so he smashed it and it, um, it cut his hand and I believe was, was it 12 stitches, 16 stitches? It was a lot of stitches. I assumed that it was, it was like chalked up a little bit for like, it might've been like a scratch or a paper cut or oh, something no. like that, but they had to oh, make no. a story. That's, that's crazy. And he kept going. Lesser men and women would have certainly just fainted and been done. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, like it, he cut, he gashed his hand. He gashed his hand and finished the scene. Spoiler alert, you go out in, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, like, it's probably one of the top 10 get your ass out of here scenes in a film ever. You go out in style and Django Unchained, literally blasted out by the, out of frame uh, by the title character played by Jamie Foxx. So let me ask you this. Uh, we like we like to teach people here at TTFT, you're a teacher, and there's practical effects and there's spe special effects. This seemed like a practical effect, but tell us, how was that shot pulled off? Well, Quentin, as far as I know, has never done a special effect. He only does practical effects. He does in-camera work, and I like that. And I think most of us old schoolers do like that. Um, it was the way they would have done it in 1920. It was, um, <laughs> I had a rig. Just a horse and a rope. We're going go. three. Yeah. Three, two, pull it. <laughs> it was, no, it, it's like a cartoon. It's like Wile E. Coyote. I have a, a rig on under my you know, you know, my uniform, my costume. Mm -hmm. I have a rig on that um, has a hook on the back mm -hmm. and the hook comes through the back of the dress and is got a hook to a rope and the rope goes up over a pulley and back to a man on a ladder. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Movie magic love. Yeah. <laughs> How many times did you have to do that? Please tell me it was not more than two or three times. How many they, times? I spent three weeks pulling. Her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I did it four times the first day. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Then two days later, when I was good and sore, they told me I had to do it two more times. Ah, and then they wind up telling you we used the we used the first one. Oh, I am <laughs> sure they used from the first. I am hundred percent sure of that. I was when we were shooting the second day. I already knew. 
this is showbiz, man. Just suck it up, Buttercup. Yeah. You know, like just do do the thing. Just do the do. And I also heard it was in the top three favorite moments of the film globally. And, you know, there are very few things that we agree on as a globe, and especially when it comes to humor <laughs> and violence. And yet globally, it was in the top three moments, whether you were in China or Iran or wherever you watched it. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> How does that make you feel that, that like, people love watching you get shot the smithereens <laughs> like that's my favorite part when she yeah when they get class up out of the yeah. is it a compliment or i'm gonna tell you my brother is the one that put this in context for me when i did kill bill when i did kill bill i originally had a part that was about 15 pages and it shot in china and i didn't get to do it and um so i ended up with the part that you see where i play rocket and mm -hmm and I don't die. And in the original part that I had had, I would die vaingloriously on scene. And um, so when my brother saw Kill Bill, volume two, uh, he's a little brother, so he's designed to annoy me and pick on me. And I'm designed to annoy him and pick on him. And so he saw the movie and was like, yeah, yeah, it was good. But you know, you're nobody till you die in a Tarantino movie. <laughs> so, I feel like that the second that my death became like a big dang deal, um, yeah. that made me a big dang deal, you know? What was your, uh, what's your favorite memory from that set? You know, as you can imagine with so much time being put into it, I have literally hundreds of favorite memories of that set, including sitting around with all the uh, background people and all, you know, for hours a day and just shooting the shit with the locals and all that. You know, I have a lot of really fun, movie memories and a lot of movies a lot of memories that are just about being in my own neighborhood working with my own neighbors i would say the thing that stands out as unique to quentin and uh working with quentin is that between every take um not between every take but pretty much um between setups he will play music uh, well the sound guy will play music and, and lots of genres, you know, just like Quentin is interested in a lot of movies, he's also interested in a lot of music. You probably can tell that from his soundtracks. Mm -hmm. And so there's always a lot of music going on and you never know what the next song is gonna be. And, and as I mentioned, our days were very, very long. And so we would do things to entertain ourselves and each other. And all of us are born entertainers. So um, I remember the day we were doing the table scene and it was going really long. And um, at some point they put on Bobby Brown's My Prerogative and Jamie got up and you know the balcony that went around Candyland? Yeah. The inside, not the outside one, but the one on the inside. So mm -hmm. he's dancing up on that balcony and the girls all had knew the video. So they're all doing the right dance in unison as Jamie, who is a professional singer, is singing the song. That was fun to watch. But of the dancing, singing, so the, the, the answer is dancing, singing. But of the dancing and singing, my favorite dancing, singing moment is that Sam Jackson is, it's the night that we're filming the funeral scene, uh, coming back from the funeral. And so it's, it's the middle of the night. It's, I don't know, three, four in the morning. And, um, they had already blown up Candyland. And so we are only gonna be able to film in one direction because we can't show Candyland because it's already been blown up. And it actually, two days later was still smoking. 
So um, there was a pyrotechnic issue, but, but anyway. Um, so, so the Annabellum mansion is in the background smoking and blown up. And uh, Sam Jackson is dressed in his velvets. Um, he had those beautiful dress velvets because we're coming from the funeral. And the song that is played is Thriller. And Sam just starts doing the entire Thriller dance. Oh, wow. And with the background of the smoking antebellum mansion. And I was like, John Landis never had it so good. Like, this is. Yeah. Oh, man. There was like maybe 20 of us in the whole world that got to see it. <laughs> that, okay, well, I mean, I think that may answer the question, but you let us know. I was going to say, before we move on, finally, is there anything else you'd like to share about the film that uh, that film that fans of the film may not know or just things, that moments that they never would have saw? I think you gave us one, but is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I'll tell you something that y'all would never know, because why would you, is that this was a wonderful opportunity for all of us, and especially those of us who were the Southern locals, for us to dig into our own heritage and have really long, deep conversations about our different versions of our heritage. I am the descendant of slave owners and, and, and it's possible I'm also the descendant of slaves. And uh, then many of the people that I was working with were certainly the descendants of slaves and the descendants of free people of color. And um, it gave us all this opportunity to look at our own history and our own family legacies and have open, grown-up discussions about all of it in the present tense, given the context of that we're all sitting around in corsets, you know? Wow. Yeah, it was, and that was really intense and, and important and meaningful and I think the whole world might be better if we just would talk about the things that that we don't talk about. Mm -hmm. That would have been amazing to be That's in that cool dialogue. That it had, yeah, I had a conversation going behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. In 2011, you worked with Richard Dreyfuss again in the short film Lone Star Trixie, which you wrote, directed, and starred in. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, this again is going to bring us back to Quentin. I wrote this script called Lone Star Trixie um, that was a modern day female Western and was clearly written far before its time. But um, Quentin read it and said that it was a work of genius that needed to be made. And he also said that I had to direct it. And unlike John Favreau and Ben Stiller, when they told me I should direct and I did nothing with that, <laughs> when Quentin said it, I heard it. Um, and I directed intermission. I wrote, produced, and directed intermission in order to learn how to direct because I had never directed. Why would I know how to direct? So I did intermission to become good enough to do Lone Star Trixie. And in the meantime, I did another one in between those two. And when I did Lone Star Trixie, I did it on somebody else's dime. A producer came in and wanted um, to shoot that eight minute piece to try and help with financing the film. And I, I, one of the rules was that in order to get the money, I had to play Trixie, which was not my intention. I had written it for a, an actor that I admire quite a bit, who's in my age range, but is not me. 
And um, so I had not written it as a vanity piece. So that's one thing that was a little hard for me was that I had written it so that I could work on the directing. And then mm -hmm. I needed to work with other people helping me direct because I was starring in it. So it, it, it was, you know, you do what you have to do to get the money, right? <laughs> so, um, which was a great opportunity. And, you know, I, I am now, because I never made the movie, I am now the only person, I am Trixie. So uh, since it's a character I wrote lovingly that Quentin thought was a work of genius, I'm happy with it. I'm proud of it. Um, I, Richard came on board um, to play Virgil, who's the jaded director who has uh, a breakdown on camera. And then uh, Mercea Monroe, who I love. I, I think she's one of the most hardworking, gifted, talented actors out there and I wish more people knew her work um but she's worked quite a bit so I'm sure you do know her work and just don't realize it if you don't know the name but in, in any case um Mercea Monroe came to play along with us and and we just shot it um you know we found locations through our crew and and shot it all in a weekend was there ever a moment on set where the irony was appreciated um that your your first starring role was directed by Richard Reifus, and now here you are directing him. I don't know if if anybody put it into high relief that way. Um, what I do know is that that was a really fulfilling experience for both of us. There's a <laughs> photograph of the two of us hugging afterward. That's probably like one of my favorite pictures of a hug ever because you can just see so much history and love and respect and admiration and willingness to put yourself out there for somebody between the two of us. Like we really have both gone the distance for each other. And, and I, I appreciate him showing up for me in that way. And, uh, and, and he, I'm sure appreciated that he told me he wanted to direct and I found him a short film to direct. And then when I was directing my own, he came and starred in it. So both of those projects are actually all my engine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he was the first person to direct me on camera. Yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm definitely getting your book. If, if there are more stories like this in your books, I, I got to just, I mean, just the things you're saying, I, I, I got to get it. So uh, let me say this for the sake of time, we're going to uh, need to kind of gloss over a decade of your good work from Abraham Lincoln, Va Vampire Hunter, which is a highly underrated film, even though he won't think so, uh, to Now You See Me, True Detective, Dark Places, Maggie, House of Cards, Queen Sugar, uh, to American Reject just recently. Is there a particular character that stands out to you for yourself? Well, some of those I got cut out of. So some of those stand out to me as like a knife in my heart. But, um, <laughs> but really, one that you didn't mention is, is uh, um, I actually, two that you didn't mention. I loved this character I played in Convergence, hmm. which was, um, it was a, a really weird, it was such a fascinating plot. I loved the story. And, and it was one of the few times that when I got the script, the character appeared to me fully formed. And that's only happened to me a couple times. She moved in a weird way that wasn't me at all. And she like she demanded things of me that were strange to me. And, and that's only happened to me a couple of times where a, a character just shows up fully formed and I have to call the director and say, I know you hired me, but this other person has shown up to do this part. <laughs> so is this okay with you? So um, yeah, she just showed up fully cooked. 
And, and I love her character. She's just dear. And she's, you know, she's a church lady, but she's a, a fighter. And, and so I really love that character. And I like that movie a lot. It's a really clever movie and it just never got enough traction. And it's Clayne Crawford and Michael T. Williamson and Ethan Embry. You know, it's a great cast and it's a terrific story. And I highly recommend it for people who are sitting at home with COVID going, what do I watch next? Um, and then the other, the other thing that I really enjoyed this character, she's terrible, she's just awful, is I did a, a recurring part in a TV show called Hot Date that was a sketch comedy show. And I'd never done sketch comedy on camera. And um, I play Linda, who is the mom of Brian Murphy, who is the star with, along with Emily Axford. And um, so I play Brian's mom and Emily's mother-in-law, future mother-in-law. And that character, they even, her introduction is that she's the godfather. The way they film her is just like the Godfather, and and she is, she is the she is so Southern evil. <laughs> she is just, you know, sugar all over that honey. I mean, all over the knife as it's going right into you. I mean, she is just, she is, she's evil, and and in a really fun way to play. I mean, I don't I don't get to play that much evil, and she is terrible. She's just terrible, and I had a lot of fun playing her. <laughs> I can imagine playing evil in a from a comedy standpoint would be Dark very evil. fun to yes. just kind of channel yeah. those parts of you. All right, so One Month Out is currently in post-production. It's a film written and directed by John Snyder. You mentioned that you've worked with him before, um, co-starred four years prior in the film Hate Crime. Can you tell us about that? Well, we did Hate Crime as husband and wife, and I, I had been with that movie Hate Crime since, I don't know, well, since 2010. I, I had been with that movie and it didn't get made until what, what year did you say? <laughs> I mean, it took us a long time to get that movie made. And so in that time, my husband was many different people. And actually I was a different character to begin with. I had been the other mother in, it's a story of two different families, two different parents whose children, uh, there's a hate crime. Uh, it's more complicated than that. It's, it's, it's actually a love story, but it's very sad. And um, uh, so I had originally been the mother of the other kid. And um, so I had had husbands as that part. And then I started having husbands as this part. We did readings and promotional materials and I, and I had many different husbands. But when John Schneider was eventually selected to do the actual film, I was thrilled with that because I, we had great on-screen chemistry, I thought, but um, we also really enjoyed working together. And, and he's somebody who, you know, he, he's been doing this since he's 18 and he just is, he, you know, he's good at working. He works a lot. And uh, so I really enjoyed working with him. Then he cast me in three different movies that he did afterward. And, uh, they were usually smaller parts um, in like crime movies. And then One Month Out was this totally different kind of movie. It's me and Barry Bostwick and he has Alzheimer's and I am actually like the star of the movie. <laughs> and it's the only time I've ever been the star of the movie. And so Barry is my husband, he has Alzheimer's and it, 
is unclear whether I am a gold digger who is taking advantage of his Alzheimer's or if I am a wife who is losing her partner. And um, so it's a, it's a like Convergence. It's a movie that keeps changing which movie it is as you go along, which I loved about Convergence. And I really like a lot about uh, One Month Out as well, is that you don't really know which movie you're watching until you've already watched it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I got to, I mean, I got to dance the time warp with Barry, you know, like I got to do really fun things. <laughs> so that was all really great. But that movie, we shot it four years ago. And oh. yeah, and it's one of those stories again. It, it, it ended up, John Schneider has had a colorful four years that include a very splashy divorce during his time on Dancing with the Stars, after which at some point he ends up in jail <laughs> so you know yeah and that's not even why the four years took so long because that's only part of the story then at some point there are two different floods in louisiana neither of which are attached to storms they're just floods like you you can't even name them it's just it rained a lot and so one of them a third of the state i mean you might have heard about it in the news a third of the state flooded and um displaced millions of people and, and there was no relief because it wasn't even a name storm. And the movie was in John's house, which was in the floodplain. And so a neighbor had to go out in a boat and rescue it as three feet of water are running through John's house. Wow. And yeah, so this happens twice. So, so there's a whole bunch of story as to why that movie's not out yet. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay well let's talk about something that actually is is going to be like you're you're the writer producer on a biopic starring orlando jones one of my favorites uh it's called about the life of dr bobby jones of the bt network of course called jones according to imdb it is in pre-production at the moment what can you what can you and are you allowed to tell us about the project and what inspired you to write it i, wish I could tell you more that's good enough for me jones <laughs> Uh, Orlando Jones and I, I've known Orlando, I know, we, I've known him since we used to call him OJ. Okay. That's so an either. okay thing to do. Okay. That was prior to 96. Uh, right? So uh, yeah. No, I've known him since like 1993. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, if no, the, if the name since. fits. Right. <laughs> right. Since, since he was a writer on Mad TV. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He wasn't even, people didn't, didn't even know him in front of the camera yet. Um, so I've known him for a whole long time and adore him. He's great. He's fascinating and funny and talented and amazing. Um, and I wrote the script because I was asked. Uh, Carl, who is the producer, uh, had asked me to write this script. And um, I wasn't familiar with Dr. Bobby Jones. And along the way, I did get to meet him after I'd already written it. Um, and, and he... I, I had a very weird experience writing that script and was so insecure about meeting him. And when, the first thing he said to me is, is, it's as if you looked into my soul. And so I felt very, very good about that, especially because I came to it with no experience of him and felt like maybe I wasn't the right person for the job. But I did know Southern is Southern. <laughs> so yes, Yeah. And Southern families, especially here in the deep, 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 deep mosquito ridden South, we have a lot in common. So, um, yeah. So, um, 
I don't know when that's coming out. I don't know when that's going to be made. I don't know. I am also working on another project that's a documentary film that's uh, about New Orleans. It's about the French Quarter and Ooh. over tourism. And so I'm working on that. I don't know when that'll be done either. <laughs> so. well, keep us posted, please. 2020, 2021, the years of uncertainty. Right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, audience, check out laurakuet.com. I will put the, the words up here so people like me will be able to find it. Um, <laughs> Laura, thank you so much again. It was such a pleasure. We learned so much and had such an awesome time. Thank you for taking a chance on us and we will do right by you. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate you guys, including me. And thank you so much. You had very interesting questions. I don't, these were, these were new ones for me. <laughs> very interesting answers. I appreciate And I appreciate you taking so much time. I know we went way over the 30 to 60 minutes that I introduced this with. So. <laughs> thank you again. And you have an awesome day. Why don't you subscribe? It'll last longer. <laughs>